Uh, we continue on with our study of Paul's prayers. Today we'll be looking at a prayer in Colossians uh, chapter 1. Thank you. Verses 9 through 14. So if you have your Bible, please open there, and that's where we'll be. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And it says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this morning I want us to observe a few lessons from two angles of this prayer in in Colossians, and you'll see in your handout the two uh, angles. Uh, Number one, I want us to look at some lessons from the setting of the prayer. And number two, lessons from the content of the prayer. Now, beginning with the first one, lessons from the setting of the prayer. First of all, it's important to observe that Paul prays for Christians that he has never met personally. Uh, Paul writes, he says, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. See that in in verse 9. In the last couple of weeks, we examined Paul's prayers for Christians whom he personally knew. Uh, They were Christians in a church he himself had founded, but here Paul is writing to a church that he's never visited, a church apparently uh, founded by Epaphras, a Colossian, who was probably led to the Lord through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Uh, Though he has never visited visited them, Paul assures the Colossian Christians that he's praying for them. And that's the whole point there in that uh, passage. Uh, Apparently, Paul has added the Colossian believers to his prayer list as he did with the other churches, right? Uh, You'll notice in Pauline prayers, he's he's always speaking about how he has been fervently praying for that church, uh, constantly having them in his prayers. And so the Colossian church um, was was another church that he uh, has ensured that he never stops praying for. And as, as each new report comes in of God's work in that place, it becomes priority for Paul's uh, constant intercession to God for them. And we have to ask ourselves how, how our prayers are and, and whether or not they're as extensive as Paul's. Uh, Paul, again, as I mentioned, uh, is praying for a group of people he has never met, although he's involved with them as a church planner. Uh, he's never met these people, yet he constantly prays for them. And so that ought to make us think about ourselves. Are we praying for those that are outside our circles, people we don't know? Is that something that you do? Is that something that you practice? Um, do, all, do all our petitions revolve around our own families and churches, our own cherished people? Um, of course, we are primarily responsible for praying for our own circle, our own church, our own family. Uh, if we don't do it, who will, right? But if that is the furthest reach of our prayers, then we become introverted in our own concerns. Of course, 
we can't pray for all believers everywhere in any specific significant way, except, like I said, in, in very general, broad um, ways. But I think it'll do us good to fasten uh, our reports on Christians in several parts of the world that we've never visited, try to keep up with uh, Christianity all over the world, find out what we can pray about um, and, and uh, intercede on their behalf about. Not only is it an important expression of the fellowship of the church, but it's also a, a critical discipline that I think will enlarge our horizon, increase our ministry, especially our ministry in prayer, and help us to become more united in spirit, in heart, with the Christians around the world. Another thing we see in the context of Paul's uh, prayer there, we also see that Paul prays unceasingly. He doesn't stop. That's his language there. Um, and again, we've come across this element of Paul's prayer life before. Um, I've pointed out in previous classes that Paul was truly a disciplined person when it came to prayer. Uh, we read in verse 9 again, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We have already observed that this does not mean that Paul's praying was this mystical ex experience where his spirit is always praying everywhere he goes. So he's doing something with his hands, yet his spirit is always praying for, for these people. That's not, that's not how it goes. And I know it's popular to say, you know, to, to define praying without ceasing, like praying anywhere as you're doing something else, completely distracted. You're driving or you're, you're fighting through traffic and you're praying in your mind. And this is not to say that that's not possible, but that's not what that text means when it, when it talks about praying without ceasing. Uh, that text specifically is referring to the church, that the church be a people who prays and doesn't stop praying. Um, so um, we see that Paul uh, was really meaning what he says when he says praying without ceasing. He wasn't exaggerating. However, uh, much uh, Paul maintained a spirit of prayer as he pursued his normal rounds of activities. He maintained set times of prayer. And you see that idea in Romans 1, verses 9 through 10. It suggests that. It gives us that insight. But here specifically, Paul is telling the Colossians that since hearing about them, he has made it a point to intercede with God on their behalf in his disciplined regular prayer times. And that's what he means that he has not stopped praying. He has appointed times where he recalls this church and he prays for them. Um, and it should, that should kind of inform how our practice of prayer should be. The point to be emphasized here is that there are some things for which we should not stop praying. Uh, there are things that we pray for and the Lord in some way, shape, or form answers those prayers. Or maybe he doesn't answer the prayer in a positive sense, which is still an answer. <laughs> Um, and that ends that prayer, right? You say, well, I got my answer. I don't have to pray for that anymore. In the Christian life, there are things that should be in our prayers constantly. When Paul tells the Colossians that he has not stopped praying for them, he implies that there are some things for which we must pray for again and again. Prayer is God's appointed means for appropriating the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And this is why prayer is considered a means of grace, at, in, at least in the Reformed tradition. Um, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism 
uh, question 88. Uh, this is the question there. It says, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer to that is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect of salvation. And and the Baptist Catechism says the same thing. So many of the uh, of the best of those thi- of those blessings we need again and again, right? And so we must constantly ask. For instance, uh, us as Christians, we learn to thank God before we eat. Some of us do that, some of us don't. But that's been a, a sort of a, a traditional thing. Uh, every, almost every Christian we know um, usually prays before a meal. That's something that's very common. Um, or, or the prayer that our Lord taught us uh, to pray assumes that we should ask for food on a daily basis, right? In the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread. We need some of God's blessings constantly. Those are things that we should come before the Lord and thank God for and ask God for, provide for us again this day. Um, uh, give, us, give us what we need this day, uh, so on and so forth. So, uh, so forth. Uh, this is the sort of thing that Paul has in mind when he tells the Colossians that he has not stopped praying for them. There are certain things that Christian, Christians need again and again uh, if they are to live and serve as Christians. For these things, Paul intercedes with his Heavenly Father on the Colossians' behalf. The unceasing nature of his praying serves as a model, I think, uh, to, encourage, to encourage us to learn to be persistent in our prayer. Uh, it's not that we ask God one thing one time, and we never revisit it. But we express our need for these things, um, and we bring it up to the Lord. Um, and that is modeled by Paul. And then finally, we see that Paul links prayers of thanksgiving to prayers of petition. Uh, Paul writes, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And we see that Paul's petitions are in some way linked to the verses that were before that, that passage. So we started with verse 9, but the stuff before it, um, we see that Paul is expressing thanksgiving. Right? He's encouraged by this church. That as the, as the preface, and then he jumps in verse 9 to uh, express to them that he's now praying for them. He has not stopped praying for them. So look at, look at the preface to his prayers. It says here, We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. He's encouraged by this church, and therefore he feels compelled to pray. Um, and that's, a, that's a, an important observation. His thankfulness for the Colossian church made him want to pray for them. Uh, that they would increase in the knowledge of God and walk worthy of him. And I want to observe also that these links between Paul's thanks to God and his intercession before God drive us to an extremely important conclusion. Um, And I'd say this, although we're inclined to pray for people in situations when they have fallen into a desperate need or or there's some sort of trial, um, that seems to be the thing that drives us to want to pray for people. 
but Paul's common practice is to pray for ongoing concerns, not only motivated by trials and tribulations, but also when he observes good things happening in this congregation. Uh, we may pray when things are going well. I'm not saying that that's not what we do. But is it not true that we're inclined to pray with a greater deal of, or a greater urgency when something is going wrong? When there's illness, financial pressure, moral failure, um, a difficult decision, those are the times when I think we're often driven to pray. And of course, that's not bad. We should. But it's always encouraging to find Christians instantly taking their needs and fears, fears to God, um, but also doing that, praying when things are, are okay. And if we pray only at those times, we're overlooking, I think, what is a great lesson from what we learn from here. Uh, and you see that the frequency with, with which he links his thanksgiving for signs of grace in the lives of this and that group of believers with his petitions for more signs of grace in the lives of the same believers, it's not a coincidence. It seems to be a regular pattern in Paul. Every time he, in, in his letters in the New Testament, when he sees that the church is doing good, that's when you see Paul praying for them. Uh, when Paul learns of the work of God in some church, he gives thanks. When he prays uh, for still more of the same, um, he, acknowledges, he acknowledges their need, especially when things are going well, he still prays to God, saying, God, increase whatever it is that you've started in them. Um, and, and I'll speak from my own experience, and maybe you can share the same experience. When you finally see a person that you've prayed for in, in Christ, maybe it's an unbeliever, a friend that's an unbeliever, um, a family member that may be an unbeliever, and then you see them come to Christ and you're excited about it, and then they start to bear fruit, it makes you want to pray more. First of all, hoping that their faith is true, um, but also that God would protect that faith. Um, you know, there's so many um, things, or there's so much doctrine out there that goes under the banner of Christianity, under the name of Christianity, that um, often, and me personally, it strikes a, a bit of worry when I see a, a new believer come into Christ. I'm just praying, like, Lord, protect them from the false theology that, that's out there, the, the ways um, in which some of these, these churches are are uh, teaching uh, the Word of God. Uh, and, and so, again, it's those things that compel me to want to see more growth um, and, and that the Lord would protect them um, from deviation. What we must ask ourselves is whether our instinct is in the same, direc or in the same direction. Are we as excited as Paul is? Um, are we seeking that same heart? Are we... Um, worried about other churches that they would be that they would remain faithful to the gospel and that they would bear much fruit. Okay, let's move on to that second point in the handout, and this is lessons from the content of the prayer. We we learned a little bit about his context. Um, let's get lessons from the content, the specific things that he prays for. So what is it that Paul again and again prays for on behalf of the Colossian believers? What's the content? 
in this prayer, there is actually just one petition, really, if you look at it. Uh, and it's followed by a statement of its purpose and description of how to answer or, or how the answer of this petition would work out in daily life. But really, it's just one petition. And the one petition is this, that Paul asks God to fill believers with the knowledge of his will. And that's it. That these believers will be filled with the knowledge of his will. Uh, Paul writes, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now think through what Paul means by the knowledge of God's will with which he wants believers to be filled. Uh, Often, I think we're inclined to use the expression, the will of God, to refer to God's will for my vocation or some aspect of my future that's determined by an impeding choice. Uh, We seek the Lord's will over whom we should marry sometimes or over major purchases or what church to attend when we move to a new city. And none of this is bad, of course. Uh, There are many ways in which the Lord does, does, does lead us, and we should not despise that. Nevertheless, this focus is often quite misleading. Uh, perhaps even dangerous, for it encourages me to think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of my own personal future, my own personal vocation, my own needs. And that is often another form of self-centeredness, no no matter how piously you put it. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't come before the Lord and seek guidance for our future. But specifically in this passage in, in Colossians, when, when we talk about being filled with the knowledge of the will of God, we're, we're not talking about we should seek to be filled with um, insight on what the future has for us, or what our purpose, are, our purpose is uh, in this world necessarily. When we read that, what, that Paul prays that the Colossian church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, we should understand it, I think, in light of Psalm 143.10, where it says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. So again, when we're we're talking about being filled with the knowledge of the will of God, think about this. Teach me to do your will. Um, it's, um, It's a lot more practical, and it's a lot more about um, walking in uh, the prescriptive will of God, that, we, that will that has been revealed to us in Scripture that speaks on how we ought to live before Him, how we ought to walk worthy of God. So to do the will of God in this passage is synonymous with obeying what God has commanded. What God has commanded is His will, and our responsibility is to do it, to walk in it. And the psalmist here does not encourage us to find God's will as to find out what God's plans are for your future. Instead, Paul is concerned with performance of that will. He prayed that the Colossian church would be filled with the knowledge of how God has commanded them to live. And, without, this goes without saying, to abide in that path, to abide in that, that walk. And when he says, teach me, He does not say, teach me your will, but he says, teach me to do your will. There's a participation there. 
And elsewhere, Paul exhorts the Roman Christians of the same thing. We see in Romans 12, 2. Actually, can someone read that? Thank you. So notice how Paul uses the word will there. Uh, Here the assumption is that the transformation of character and conduct brought about the renewal of the Christian's mind is what equips a Christian to test and approve God's will. Uh, This is to discover personally and experientially God's ways and how they are the best ways. Uh, It requires a personal experience with God's word in which you agree you align, your heart uh, rejoices and is glad as it beholds the, the law of God, is encouraged by the law of God, not, not when it comes to justification, right? We all agree that we fall short of it. But the heart is glad, at least the Christian heart, is glad when it looks at the law of God. And it sees it to some degree as a grace because it... it um, it helps us to walk in line with the will of God. And we ought to say, thank you, Lord, for revealing uh, more clearly um, what, what it is that pleases you. What, what are the things that doesn't please you? And um, it's, it's a blessing to be able to have that and to be able to look at that and say, uh, this is how I'm going to walk um, and, and have some guidance from it. Teach me to do your will. Uh, notice um, we're told elsewhere, Um, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. See that? You see that in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. So going back to our text, to understand what the Lord's will is cannot be reduced to merely an intellectual pursuit. Over against the evil and folly of the surrounding society, Christians are to make most of every opportunity to avoid foolishness and to show that they understand what the Lord's will is. And I think it's not only grasping it in your mind, but walking in it. I think it's important to mention that it is folly to pretend to seek God's will for your life in terms merely of a marriage partner or some sort of Christian vocation where there's no deep desire to pursue God's will first, as it's described in his law, in his moral law. And you see this a lot in popular Christian culture. A lot of Christians out there are more concerned with purpose in the sense of how it satisfies them and their walk and and their future and their vocation. And so when they say, I'm seeking the will of God, they're more concerned about seeking what God has for them in the sense of... uh, prosperity and things of that nature or sometimes not even prosperity but uh, vocational decisions and things like that and they elevate that higher than seeking out to walk in the will of God as it pertains to his righteousness and his law and walking in holiness and it's foolish to to desire to seek out what your future holds and to ignore your personal walk with God and your, your holy walk with God And this is where you can tell where Christians are uh, in their faith and and what it is that they're learning um, and and whether or not they're even reading the scriptures. Um, Because from that, you can see whether or not they they really, 
they truly have communion with God, or they're properly understanding uh, this this concept of will. Uh, so it's it's important to 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 see what's priority here. Um, and and priority here, first and foremost, is to walk in ways that are pleasing um, to God. Uh, knowledge of God's will consists of wisdom, which we gain primarily from heeding to God's word in Scripture. And in the context of the Colossian church, for them, it was heeding to the apostolic teaching, right? And Paul's prayer is motivated in part by his concern over that specific church's flirtation with syncretism and pluralism of their own day. Uh, these dangerous tendencies end up reducing Christ to merely uh, relative importance. And Paul was aware of that, which, which probably was, was the motivation of his prayer. And likewise, even in our own context, when a new believer comes to Christ, I almost immediately worry that some worldly version of Christianity might steer them away. Syncretism and pluralism is just as prevalent in our time as it is in the time of Paul. Interestingly, in the next chapter, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. You, you see that in the second chapter of Colossians, uh, specifically verses 8 through 10. So here, Paul prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, a knowledge that consists of wisdom and understanding of all kinds at a spiritual level. Now, how else will they withstand the pressures of their surrounding pagan culture, pressures that are subtle? How else will they think Christianity and uh, think Christianly, excuse me, and genuinely bring their minds and hearts in conduct into conformity with the will of God. Our own generation, I think, more urgently needs this prayer. Uh, many of us has chased every Christian fad, uh, jumped on every Christian bandwagon, adopted every Christian gimmick, <laughs> pursued every encounter with the media. I especially worry about women's ministries. Uh, for starters, the Christian book industry will publish book after book by just about anyone who would sell, regardless of their credentials. Uh, the branding and gimmicks that are used to attract female consumers are quite low. Appealing to emotions and following trends that, personally, I think, rather exploits women in a way that, if I were them, I would find personally offensive. The same goes with many women conferences. But the real, is, the real issue isn't so much the pink packaging and the flowering borders, but the theology that's inside that's often offered to, um, to women. Uh, and I would say don't be fooled by the pretty pictures of, of the girl posing next to her coffee mug and the Bible with colorful highlighter markers. It's a trap, I tell you. Um, but ladies, dig, dig deep in the word. Read commentaries. Listen to serious lectures. Hand your duties off to your husband and spend hours in prayer and meditation. This will prove to be very fruitful. Now, men are not exempt from this either. We must be careful with the surrounding pagan culture. We desperately need meditative 
and reflective dependence on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See that in Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4 as well. The need takes on painful urgency when we discover that even within our churches, let alone the nation at large, there are rapidly declining standards of the most basic Bible knowledge. Biblical illiteracy, I think, needs to be accompanied by love and obedience to it as well. But ignorance of the Bible, which is the focal place where, we, uh, where God discloses his will for us, if there's biblical illiteracy, uh, it will, it'll ensure that we will not be filled with the knowledge of God's will that Paul is asking God for, for this church to have. For many churches, the knowledge of God declines while a fascination for the fads and all the different techniques just come in and replace it. So again, we should join Paul in his prayer that God might fill believers with the knowledge of his will. Anyway, moving along. Uh, Another purpose of Paul's petition is that believers might be utterly pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And Paul says in in verse 10, again, going back to Colossians 1, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And and, uh, we've come across this before in our previous classes. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians 1.5, for instance, Paul assures the Christians in Thessalonica that they will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which they are suffering. And we talked about this before. But here, in our, in our uh, passage here in Colossians, I think the language is stronger and even more personal. The purpose of Paul's praying, as he does, is that believers might live a life worthy of the Lord. He seems to be raising the standard a bit. There's, it's more demanding. Um, he, he's saying worthy of the Lord as opposed to worthy of the kingdom of God, which he's used that in, in uh, previous letters. Here specifically, he's saying uh, that you may be, live a life worthy of the Lord specifically. Uh, in, in, in case you don't see it, um, worthy of the Lord means in practical terms that he wants them to please the Lord in every way. Um, and this is, this is what it means to live a life worthy of the Lord. The concept of living worthy often, oftentimes goes over our head. Um, we hear that we're familiar with that because we hear it often as we read the Bible and we hear sermons preached with that language. Um, but to have a clearer understanding, I, I think, it, it, try to imagine a, a shame, honor and shame culture, okay? In a shame cult- culture, one of the worst things you can do is bring shame to your family or clan or a tribe. And again, in the Western world, we, we do not, by and large, think in that kind of in those kinds of terms. Uh, some families may, um, but we don't really have a shame culture here. Uh, if anything, I think there's more of a shameless, a virtue of shamelessness. Um, but in a shame culture, people are taught that they must be worthy of their family's name, worthy of their country, or worthy of some sort of heritage. Now, Paul tells them that we must live up to the expectations, not of a particular church, but rather of the church's Lord, living worthy of the Lord. Uh, They they are not to live worthy of of a specific church or group, living worthy of the Lord. And that would be an immensely powerful plea, I think, if if you place that in the context of uh, a shame culture. So again, in Paul's world, to be a Christian, to confess Jesus as Lord, 
meant to adopt a worldview in which you're bound to please him in every single way. So when he says, walk worthy of the Lord, he had your speech in mind. He had your, your demeanor. He had your attitude in mind. He had all the decisions that you were planning on making in mind, even your, your, um, your choice of attire. Now, this is not to be legalistic, but you do see that Paul speaks about principles of um, external beauty versus internal beauty and how you should, you should uh, prioritize the internal beauty um, over the external beauty, things like that. But he had something to say, at least um, something that was um, indirectly related to almost everything. Um, and all that can be summarized by this concept of walking worthy of the Lord. Fast forward, we're running out of time here. I want us to look at uh, a few points here. Uh, we see that Paul goes on to describe what it means to be utterly pleasing to the Lord. Right? Paul sketches in terms of four characteristics what a life pleasing to the Lord looks like. And you'll see him here. I, I projected it. Um, four characteristics. These are typical traits. Uh, they are the fleshing out of what living life worthy of the Lord really means. Uh, they're brought about from, from the passage here. The first one is bearing fruit in every good work. You see that in verse 10. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, a second part of that verse 10. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 11. And giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 12. I'm just going to speak very briefly about each one and then we'll close out. Bearing fruit in every good work. Um, Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So scripture teaches that a living tree will produce good fruit. And if you're a dead one, you won't. So bearing fruit in every good work uh, is manifesting your life in Christ, your abiding in Christ, your union with Christ. If we are alive in Christ, we will bear fruit. The second one is increasing in the knowledge of God. Christians will increase in the knowledge of God. And what, Paul's, what Paul means uh, when he says the knowledge of God's will, uh, knowledge that consists of all spiritual wisdom and understanding, uh, it speaks on obedience and also on conformity to God's will. So Paul is not satisfied with the mere status quo. Christians are organisms that grow, not machines that simply perform. Uh, we must learn. Um, we must learn organically what the will of God is according to His precepts in scripture read it digest it feed upon it and allow that to bear fruit naturally um, and this is why the means of grace are very important anyone can perform the duties that are commanded in the ten commandments in an external way but it's not until you internalize it that it produces real fruit it's not real fruit when you just do the do the deed real fruit has to bear from within um, it has to come from the spirit of God that's why, and this is important for your own peace and your own conscience as you walk 
as you seek to walk with a clear conscience, uh, don't seek to produce these fruits from the flesh. It won't produce. Uh, you won't produce. You, you'll, you'll look like you are, but you won't. When you, when you uh, recognize your need to abide in Christ and feed off of the means of grace as, you are, as you're united to Christ, they produce naturally. Um, and, and it's important that uh, we understand that at first it requires, as it says in the text, the increasing of the knowledge of the will of God, and therefore uh, the result will be bearing a fruit. And never put the horse in front of the carriage. Is that how the expression goes? How is it? Cart before the horse. Yeah, that's right. Don't, just don't put it backwards. Uh, the third point, Christians are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Uh, this is how Paul thinks of believers. They're being strengthened with all the power according to God's glorious might so that they may have great endurance and patience. Um, uh, what's remarkable is that the power for which Paul prays is tied to the power of the resurrection. Uh, you see that in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. I wish I can show you these texts. Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, and also, also Colossians 2, 12. It, it speaks about the same power that has resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same power that you're um, being strengthened in to have perseverance, patience, to bear fruit. Uh, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's work uh, that does these things in you. Then finally, uh, Christians give thanks to the Father who has qualified them. Uh, not to give thanks would be a mute testimony to what I think is a catastrophic loss of perspective. I think when you don't give thanks, you're missing out on an important perspective. To give thanks, to give thanks with joy, is essentially to remember that the Father has qualified us. You see that in the last verse there. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's uh, verses 12 through 14. So if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, then he would send an economist, right? Um, if he saw that our greatest need was entertainment of some sort, he'd just send a, an artist or a comedian. If God had perceived that our greatest need was a political uh, need, then he would send us a politician. If he'd perceived that our greatest need was, was wealth or even health, he would send us, I don't know, uh, a doctor or someone wealthy, I don't know. Um, but he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin and our separation from God, our alienation from him. Our profound rebellion, our death, needed a remedy, and it was Jesus Christ. He sent a Savior. And what Paul is saying is that to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ is to overflow with, with joyful thanksgiving in the light of the salvation that we received and that was given to us from his hand. If we have been transferred out of the dominion of, in, dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the, of the Son, beloved by God, our only appropriate response would be joyful gratitude. And uh, I think because of the syncretism that was around that church, the Colossians needed to be reminded that, that Christ alone is the head of the church, right? Paul reminds them in such a way that he displays that joyful um, attitude that, that, that he himself is describing there. 
Um, and so again, this is the, the natural reaction um, to those who have been transferred from darkness to light. Uh, there's, a, there's a thanksgiving to the Father there. And so all these things we gain from this, this prayer. Um, and again, the line of thought, and this is concluding here, uh, the line of thought in this prayer of Paul, I think is straightforward. He prays constantly that these Christians be filled with the knowledge of God's will for the purpose of living a life worthy of the Lord, to be pleasing to him by growing and attaining spiritual grasp of what God's will is. And as all of his prayers, he not only models good prayer, but his prayers are filled with these deep theological truths that we've, uh, we've pulled out on, on growing in the knowledge of God and how that helps us to walk worthy of Christ. Uh, so I trust that what we've observed today uh, from Paul's prayers will help us help ourselves grow in the knowledge of God uh, in walking in his will um, as we are further conformed into Christ's image. So I pray that God would grant those things. Um, any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Gracious God, we ask that um, we would also be filled with the knowledge of your will, and that from it we would bear fruit. We ask that our, our fruit stem not from ourselves, but from the good news that in Christ you've qualified us, Lord, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, as your word says. So we ask that we would be persistent in praying to this end. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.